Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right. Uh, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Graham Markell at Bona Note Wines. Uh, it's July 23rd, 2019. Thanks so much for joining us today, Graham. My Appreciate pleasure. this. Um, we'll start by asking uh, why wine, or in your case, why food and wine? Yeah, I guess that goes back to just my family. Um, we've always had a rich food culture, even going back before I was born in my family. My mom's from Alabama, where they had, you know, a farm where they grew all their own produce and raised animals and you know just lived off the land and then I mean the best cook I know is still my great aunt she <laughs> has incredible peas and cornbread and um, yeah I guess black-eyed peas cornbread and okra but then my mom got really into Italian cooking and started a cooking school in Italy when I was about nine years old and I started joining her on some of the ships that she would do and kind of got immersed into the Italian food and wine culture. I was nine years old. I would definitely like swirl glasses of wine and smell them, but never really like took to the wine part at nine years old, which is pretty understandable. I was just like, smells like grapes. But, um, my mom still thinks like I had an incredible palate at that point, but all I ever said was it smells like grapes. Um, and then just through you know, high school and college, I, I loved to cook. I'd always cook for all my friends and even do a few catering events here or there. And then after my first stint in college, I got into bartending. I went back to school for writing literature actually and I was bartending that whole time. And I worked at this place in Boulder, Colorado called The Kitchen and um, incredible kind of like farm to table, sustainable restaurant. And one of their programs they had was staff trainings that were pretty in-depth and they had them once or twice a week where you could go to class and learn about wine, beer, alcohol. And so I, you know, you had to attend like one, one a month, but I would try and go to at least one a week because it's just like things I wanted to know about. Mm -hmm. You're working with all these incredible products, but you're also like in an environment that's when you're bartending, you're up late, you're dealing with people that can be inebriated sometimes, and it's like, it's really fun, but there comes an end to that. And you're like, all right, gotta move on. I'd actually just graduated with my degree in writing and literature from Naropa University, and um, had a semester where my girlfriend was still going to school. It was her last semester, and we were both gonna go travel, and I wanted to become a travel writer, so I was gonna travel and write about it, but I had one semester off, and so, you know, the combination of loving all these products I'd been working with and having that time off that happened to be during the fall or harvest as we call it around here. Um, I wanted to go to Oregon, I'd never been to Oregon. And so I talked to the wine director at the restaurant and he told me that you could be a harvest intern. Mm -hmm. And so I got on winebusiness.com and I did like all my research and email people and not one person emailed me back. <laughs> um, but. Uh, Nate Reddy, who is a master sommelier and now one of the owners of Haiyu and Smock Shop Band, was a family friend, and China, his partner, is a longtime family friend. I actually went to the same middle school as her, and she worked for my mom, so 
I emailed Nate and a half hour later he just called me. He's like, you just come work for me. And that was it, Antica Terra down in the Willamette Valley, which I mean, I ended up working there for four years, but really it was more than just working there. Like it, they taught me all about fine wine to like even a higher level than I'd been learning at at the kitchen. And from day one, they're like, you know, you can just start your own winery one of these days. It's not as hard as it seems. And I was like, that's not true. You guys are just making that up. But they just kept telling me that. and I. Over the four years of working there, I, you know, learned how to make wine in Maggie's style and um, kind of got the idea that maybe I could do this one day on my own. Um, and Nate eventually, who was the general manager of Antiquitera, left to start HiU and Smock Shop Band, and I left with him to go start that project. And so I was assistant winemaker there for three years, and he was always pushing me. Um, to start my own project and then I can make wine in his facility for mm -hmm. free and just like slowly get started, which is exactly what happened. So 2016, um, I had been looking for some fruit to buy that was gonna be just something that was a little more unique. There's like, we're in Oregon, it's known for Pinot Noir and there's some of the best winemakers in the world here making Pinot Noir and it's, it's incredible. But for me, I just wanted something that was a little, don't touch the mic probably. Uh, <laughs> Good. Um, spoke a little bit more towards me and I found some Sangiovese through a friend and so I went out um, am I going too far into you're going great I'll, okay. I'll go back and fill in the gaps so okay. yeah you're good um, yeah so I, I found some Sangiovese and my friend told me where it is and I called the vineyard manager he said he can meet me out here on this day and I drove out it's just like it was the beginning of harvest and it was past the Dalles on these little like windy country roads, no stop signs. And I was like, there's no Sangiovese vineyard out here. This can't be true. <laughs> and I definitely thought it was last. You're going through ranches and eventually you find this like beautiful sloping vineyard and there's nets on. So it was, it was bright green, but I pulled up and I tasted the first grape and it was full of acidity and flavor. I was like, oh man, this stuff's actually delicious. And so we talked and worked it out. And that was kind of the birth of it all. Sure, cool. All right, so we'll get back to that in a second. Yeah. Um, you talked about growing up with sort of food and, and, and then, then wine kind of just being part of life. So tell me a little yeah. about the, and having, having a great palate at nine years old. So tell me a little about the, the influence of, of that on uh, well, why you wanted to do this. Okay, first of all, having a great palate at nine, that was my mom's opinion. <laughs> <I> <laughs> take that with a grain of salt. Um, but it was just, um, so it was just, my mom would cook food every night and it was often just the family but it was often there's people in my house all the time we were always cooking a big meal and eating together and drinking wine hanging out my dad um, worked for an organic fruit and vegetable distribution company so he has always had these like scrape produce and fruits around the house and it was just like abundance of incredible products um, and then my mom always knew what to do with it and i loved to cook at that point so even at you know, age 12, I think I was cooking the whole Thanksgiving dinner, and she would do her things, I'd do my things, and it was just like collaborative, and she was a, a great teacher for all of that. She, she does, she teaches cooking, so. Um, it was just an incredible environment to kind of like nurture something that I naturally love to do. Sure. And you travel a lot, obviously, also you mentioned. Yeah, that. yeah. So tell me about the, kind of the, the impact of that. Um, <coughs> So, I mean, I was going to Italy with my mom since I was nine, and at first I would just go for like a couple weeks, and then it turned into spending a whole semester at the local Italian school. 
and uh, then you really just get, you're in Chianti, um, surrounded by vineyards and incredible food, and you just get to like feel the generosity of the people and how they relate to food in a completely different way than you do in the United States for the most part. I mean, tell me, tell me what you mean by that. Um, I mean, so at school, just it would only go till one. They'd send all the students home tea with their families for lunch. Uh, and then like one day a week, it would go till like five, but they would bring in the entire school down to a local restaurant and feed them like beautiful plates of pasta, <laughs> some local bread and like fresh veggies and they would all go back to school. Um, it was just, it, it's so much more important to have the local food and to enjoy a meal as a family or family and friends mm -hmm. than most places around here. Sure. Yeah. So you mentioned Naropa, Univer or Naropa University? Naropa yeah. School. Tell me a little bit about that. It's an interesting school. Yeah, so that is an interesting school, I'll tell you that. It's um, the only Buddhist-inspired accredited university in the United States, and it was started by um, Chogun Trumpa Rinpoche and Allen Ginsberg. Chogun Trumpa Rinpoche is credited with bringing Buddhism to the West, and then Allen Ginsberg is, you know, the famous beat poet and so, I mean, just right there, that's such an incredible combination. And so it's been around since the 70s. I forget when it was accredited, but um, they focus on a lot of Buddhist studies, um, meditation, psychology, and they also have an incredible writing program called the uh, Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics. Um, and that's what I went to. <laughs> and so the teachers there are, are definitely unique and fun, and you get a try all these incredibly different forms of writing and perspectives on it and so I always just wanted to do like basic travel writing but it definitely like helped round it out into mm -hmm. something more that I really learned a lot from. Got an interesting example of something you did there that was kind of off the beaten path? Oh god. Um, there's so many things. Uh, we did a songwriting program at the summer writing program and I thought I was just going to have to write a song and then they made me get up and perform the song which is <laughs> for me I'm very shy and can't sing it was probably when I was like I don't want to say the worst experience of my life but I'm not going to do it again that's for sure um, I don't know if that's so unique but uh, I mean you have meditation class you have uh, Tai Chi just unique classes that I actually I enjoyed all that mm -hmm. that was great so you're in the food, kind of the food restaurant business at that point, and you had this idea to be a travel writer. So tell me about um, kind of what you were anticipating, <clears throat> excuse me, going forward. And, and then was there a moment when wine making or what, that, that side of things kind of became what you wanted to do? Um, well, first of all, the travel writing, I had been doing a bit of traveling on my own. Um, when I was about 20 years old, I spent a few months in Thailand, and then the next year I went back and spent time in Thailand, and then tried to make it overland from Thailand to Europe via the Trans-Siberian Railroad. I didn't actually end up doing that. It was just, I made it to Beijing, which is so incredible, but then it was sold out. I was like, that was bad planning. <laughs> so I had to fly, but it's just like, traveling and writing about my experiences with other cultures and meeting people from around the world and getting their perspective on things was just my favorite thing to do. I still love traveling and doing that, but. Um, when I got into wine, I don't think there was an exact moment where I was like, I think I want to do this. It just was, I was enjoying myself so much, the first harvest, and then I did do a bit of traveling afterwards with my girlfriend. We actually did take that trip, and mm -hmm. I worked in a few vineyards in New Zealand, 
um, travel around Australia. And I think it was just while doing that, I felt the, the call to come back and do another harvest. And then it just snowballed from there, I think. Um, working in Antiguaterra was incredibly rewarding as far as like the things you were learning and the wines you were making, wines you were drinking and all that. So mm -hmm. I got along with Maggie Harrison really well. She's still one of my good friends and mm -hmm. mentors. So it just kind of was fostered in that environment, I think. You mentioned that you'd always wanted to come to Oregon but hadn't been there before. Tell me about your kind of first impressions when you got out here and, and sort of first impressions of the industry when you got here. Okay, I gotta think back to that one. Um, that was 2011, it's eight years ago now. And um, it, it, I think that I'm from Colorado. I don't know if we actually fully said that, but there's a lot of similarities in kind of the size and beauty of nature in the two states. So it wasn't too different, but there's a, there a great thriving food scene in Portland, which I connected with. Um, I met a bunch of great people through working in Ticatera, so I had this like nice kind of combination of working in an industry I really like, plus a bunch of, it, it, we still call it like the Ticatera frat, because it's just these guys, Maggie would only hire guys, and so I still hang out. I was just camping with three of them this weekend. <laughs> um, and so it was just like, an impression of this place that was making incredible products and was incredibly beautiful and had similarities mm -hmm. to Colorado, but you could add on the winemaking and the coast and all these other things, which were just like a slight benefit. Mm -hmm. So I still have a huge rivalry, like sports-wise with all my friends who are from <laughs> Oregon, but I, I love being here, it's great. So you mentioned that, you mentioned the first harvest being kind of a, a, being kind of a great experience for you. Tell me about, what it was like sort of diving into that and and the learning curve you faced um yeah so it's like uh, the way it's always explained to me and as i fully agree with is the first harvest you're just trying to get like your head above water trying to understand what's going on and like you you pick up these little nuggets that you can kind of build on um so Sorry, what was the exact question? Just, just sort of like what, what, what happened during the ex that experience and what, what your learning curve was in terms of like getting yeah. into the industry. Okay, so at Antiquaterra, it's a small enough winery where you're doing pretty much everything, even from year one, and you're talking about it with the right people. You can, Maggie's accessible, you can ask her questions. So there's not really one part of the winemaking process that you don't learn. Like you're not selecting barrels per se or you know, like analyzing some of the lab results, mm -hmm. but you're physically doing everything else. And so it's like, for me, I'm very much that sort of learner. Like I have to do it to learn it. You can't mm -hmm. just tell me about it. So, I mean, it was all hands on. And once I've done something a couple times, I can usually pick it up from there. So um, it was an incredible environment. And so not only do you have Maggie teaching you about like the wine making side of things, then you have Nate, who's a master sommelier teaching you about like the broader context and tasting you on wines that are similar to what you're doing and so it just kind of fosters both ends of that really well and so I feel very lucky to have been in that environment my first four years. Mm -hmm. So after those four years you, you, you kind of follow Nate out to this part. Yeah. Tell me about the, the difference between coming out of the Wyoming Valley and out, out into this. Oh man it's it's different out here and I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing against Willamette Valley. They've got incredible terroir for Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and all the great things they're doing there. But um, so what I've learned from being in the gorge here is starting here in Cascade Locks where we are, 
it's a rainforest basically and in 40 miles you get to the Dalles which is a like high alpine desert if you will and or high desert and so for every mile you go east you lose an inch of annual rainfall so you find these little microclimates where you can grow whatever particular grape that you feel like would fit there and you can play with so you have the columbia which is right behind me mm -hmm. going uh, east to west and then you have 25 miles if you say like hood river you have Mount Hood, which is 25 miles to the south, Mount Adams, which is 25 miles to the north. So you have this kind of like crux of a big river and these big volcanoes. So you can play with altitude and all this volcanic kind of terroir. You have Missoula flood material coming down. So it's just like so much more diverse than the Willamette Valley, um, which makes it really fun for someone who wants to grow different Italian varietals from all over the peninsula. And you can just find a place that suits it best. and. Um, learn about all these different grapes that you can just experiment and see if it really like fits your personality or profile the way you would like to make wine and um, it's a up-and-coming area very much I think that it's you know it's been here making wine for 30 or so years but it's definitely at this like renaissance I think and watching what Nate and Analemma and like Idiot's Grace who are like really leading the way are doing is incredible to be like just behind I feel like. <laughs> Some, some about your time with Nate uh, then at Hayu and kind of the c compare and contrast with, with working at Antica Terra. Uh, it's, it's so funny because Nate worked there for seven years and their styles of winemaking are completely different. I don't think <laughs> any, either of them would be upset with me saying that. <laughs> um, like uh, Maggie is so precise on, and Nate's very precise too, but it's a totally different sort of precision. Mm -hmm. um, like Maggie has two sorting tables. You cluster sort, gets to stem, and then you berry sort, and only the best fruit goes in, and everything's very controlled, and uh, it's a lovely way to make wine in one style, and it's great to have that as a like initial way to learn how to make wine, and then to see what Nate has done, which is taking it into this completely complex, Maggie's wines are super complex and crazy as well, but what Nate's doing with the farming and the animals and the vineyard mm -hmm. and the permaculture and the biodynamics and then, you know, in the winemaking where you have like these, I don't want to call them field blends, but they're field blends of these different varietals grafted together in one block and harvested all at once and then co-fermented into this incredibly complex, almost new, they're not new, but these blends that are just mind-blowing mm -hmm. and fun um, and then just like the way you can like you can't see the whole winery here but all we have is a basket press there's no pumps um, there's no forklift we're gonna get a forklift <laughs> it's coming this harvest um, and so it's this kind of like old world way of making wine where it's very gentle and um, rustic but I think it's really beautiful it's just like a pure essence of the grapes that you end up getting from this. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it'll be a little funky and wild, but I, it's fun to kind of embrace those shoulders and complexity through that sometimes. And so that's what I learned from Nate is like how to um, make these wines with a lot of character that are very deep and come from this whole like, I kind of like you touching it, um, like other realm of complexity. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes sense. But Absolutely, yeah. 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 
So you talked about how people were encouraging you and saying it wasn't, wasn't so hard to, just do, to do your own thing. Uh, what did you find as you were trying to do your own thing? How, uh, how was that experience of, of getting started? Yeah, because that was from day one. They told me I could do my own thing and it <laughs> took me uh, like seven years to actually get it going. So um, the first thing that it all kind of came from is we did a rosé competition between the interns at Antiquitera the first year. And that's cool. Like, I'm a competitive person, so I was trying to find some sort of competitive edge over my fellow interns. And so I was like, I'm going to make a rose vermouth and see, <laughs> see how that goes. So I just come from bartending. So it was like this very natural bridge um, to, from one to the other. And so I just did a bunch of research on how to make vermouths and uh, never actually made one <laughs> for that rose competition. I have one now. There's a whole bunch of cases sitting over there. And it's actually been really fun kind of create a project that I have as part of my repertoire here is Vermouth. Um, and so that, I mean, it's, it's really hard for when you're like, I'm going to do my own Vermouth <laughs> and no one's ever showed you how to make Vermouth or that's like, everyone's like, yeah, that's a great idea. I have no, no advice for you <laughs> um, or some advice here and there. And so that took forever. I like, I wanted to do my own distilling and I did all these research on herbs and everything. And it was, but it was like such a big jump from not knowing actually how to make Vermouth to like selling your own Vermouth. So that probably wasn't the best way to do it. And that's, I mean, I retroactively made a Vermouth mm -hmm. now that I know it. I just had to go for it, but I'd already had like a couple wines out at that point. And it was like, it was just easier to know mm -hmm. the whole process um, once you'd kind of done it in a simpler way. Mm -hmm. um, so I was very lucky within that to have the use of Hayu as a winery to make my own wines and like um, Nate as a resource for any questions I may or may not have had at that time. So it was relatively easy to get the wine made, but the part that I wasn't so ready for and still quite frankly struggle with is the licensing and um, all the business aspect mm -hmm. of it. Luckily, my dad is um, my partner in all this and so he's a business consultant by trade so he knows the business end of it really well and can talk, like coach me through all that uh, which is an incredible resource and so I, I just I learned to ask a lot of people a lot of questions in areas I didn't know a lot about <laughs> and that is like the most important part I would say. Does that answer the question? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Tell me about tell me about this space and, and why you chose to be here and, and then sort of you mentioned finding your very first grapes. How did you find other spots along here that were growing what you wanted to, to make? Um, yeah. So this space here, we're in a warehouse in Cascade Locks. It's five thousand square feet. It's not a hundred percent perfect for making wine, but it's worked really well. It's son of man cidery, and so Jasper is someone I met through Bethany, who's some of these barrels here um, and we I was just looking for a space in this area I was living out here at the time and I do like having the winery out here closer to the grapes and the facility just ended up working like every day I feel like it works better and better mm -hmm. and better it's this location at first I was like Cascade Locks I don't know about that but it turns out it's like the gateway to the gorge so whenever we do tastings it's really easy for people to get out here. It's only 40 minutes from Portland. They can go for hikes and then come back or go for a hike after this. We're right on the river. It's a kind of like thriving scene. It's, a, it's affordable for us. So 
it works really well. It's a brand new facility. We got good drains. Everything works here. We just need a few more things to be perfect. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. uh, that works out really well. And then finding the first scrapes was not that finding the ones I wanted to work with is a bit of a challenge. But then since then, people kind of know me and so I'll get phone calls about things. I know the vineyard managers in the area and they know I want like organic Italian grapes so they'll lead me towards them and see if I want them. Um, I don't always like done like the first the Sangiovese vineyard for the first year wasn't organic but I've convinced the vineyard manager to spray them naturally ever since and so I will do that with vineyards here and there where I feel like if you just push them in the right direction then you're doing everyone a favor. I'll want to buy the grapes and they'll get sprayed in a natural way and it shows a farmer like a different way through that it's their choice whether they do it or not but it can be successful mm -hmm. and people will buy the grapes if they are organic and that it works to spray organically mm -hmm. um, and honestly like there's people are growing more grapes in Oregon than we can make wine at the moment so people offer me stuff during harvest before harvest finding grapes is not the hard part right now I would say um, saying no is probably the hard part, <laughs> but it's fun, it's, uh, it's really good situation to be in. You talked about wanting to kind of make wines that reflected character, reflected, your, reflected you, so tell me about how you've sort of chosen varietals, if there's things you've tried that haven't quite worked, and how you've kind of chosen what you, what you want to make, yes. and, and, what you, and what you do make. Yeah, okay, so I started with the Sangiovese, and I wanted to, like, I guess a lot of my winemaking style comes out of working with Nate and... Um, doing research of where the things used to be done. Mm -hmm. um, so like the Sangiovese, it's high, it's like 75% whole cluster, give or take, on the vintage. Mm -hmm. And then I do extended skin contact for either 30 to 90 days. There's no real recipe per se, but um, it's per vintage. And I do like to do the extended skin contact for sure. Um, and then I press it through an old basket press into large format barrels, which mm -hmm. is, these guys behind me here, and just trying to replicate, like in Chianti, they put it even the bigger fooders, but this is the biggest ones I had. Um, so just trying to like add a little bit of that old world feel to it, plus like the modern techniques mm -hmm. I've learned from Maggie and Nate, it's mm -hmm. kind of the style. And then varietal wise, there has been one that I've worked with and been like, I don't want to work with that again. Mostly it's my, it's gonna be my fourth harvest this year. So I feel like if I didn't get it right, it's more like, let me just change the style on that a little mm -hmm. bit. Like I've got some uh, Pinot Grigio that was 90 days on the skins. That was, that was way too long. <laughs> That's probably gonna get made into vermouth, which would be really cool. Mm -hmm. But I also love working with that vineyard. So I'm probably just gonna shorten that by 84 days or something <laughs> like that. And then it'll be a nice kind of brisk, orangish Pinot Grigio. And I've done that before and that the better style. So I'll play around with like the shorter skin contact on that. Um, and then I was just in Italy this spring and I had this Merlot in Friuli that kind of blew my mind. I was at this place Borgo di Tilio and I was pretty jet lagged. It was my third day there. It's always the worst day and I've been wine tasting and super tired all day and then we went to this place and I was like this is cool. I've never had the wines before but it's a beautiful vineyard but I just wish I was at home sleeping. And I tried the whites, I was like, ooh, these are really good. And then I tried a Merlot, and I was like, I'm back. <laughs> this is so delicious, let's go drink more wine. And so this year I really want to try and make a Friulian style Merlot. So that's kind of like how I 
want to expand in the future is be inspired by a varietal. And at, I make 750 cases right now, which is really fun, and I've doubled from the year before. And I want to go to like a thousand cases this year, but I don't want to add too many more varietals. I want to kind of bulk up what I have. Just, I mean, as far as my business goes, it's just easier to keep a few more distributors happy like that. So I'm just trying to make more of what I have right now, which if we, we can go down the whole line is uh, Sauvignon Blanc, Pinot Grigio, Pinot Noir, Sangiovese, and there's Dolcetto, and I make a Dolcetto Rosé. Um, and then we'll add the Merlot this year, hopefully, if we can work it all out. Sure. Yeah, and then Vermouth. So you talked, about, you, you talked about finding kind of the right microclimate for all, for all of these. Um, are you anticipating finding more of these little pockets? Like you talk about being inspired by a variety. Are you anticipating finding more of those around the area and expanding that way? I'm anticipating finding vineyards here that I really like working with. Um, possibly more than ones I do now. I actually, I really like all the farmers I work with so far. Um, there's new vineyards going in all the time uh, with hopefully some really interesting varietals I haven't even thought of or ones I've dreamed of but never thought would be planted around here. Um, so there's that aspect of it. And then, you know, when I was working at Hyu for the first two years of this, I was living on a vineyard, working in the vineyard. So I didn't really have too much aspirations to like have my own vineyard at the time. <laughs> but now that I've just been here in the cellar, which I love. I, I miss the vineyard aspect of it, and like on that same trip to Italy, you get so inspired by like the vineyards that you're in. Like if you go to Grobner, which is an insane example, but it, that is so inspiring. At the same time, if that was my other big takeaway: is like Merlot, <laughs> and one day I'd like to have my own vineyard. So in the next two to three years, like we'll see how we grow, and that would be really fun. And I don't know where that would be in the gorge. It'd definitely be in the gorge, but. Um, and then depending where that is, we'll choose the varietals mm -hmm. that work best for that. Tell, tell me about selling wine in Oregon when it isn't Pinot Noir. How, how has it been kind of introducing people to other Oregon grapes? That's a good question. Um, it's actually, uh, I would say, easier in Oregon than outside of Oregon when you don't have an Oregon Pinot Noir. Mm -hmm. uh, Portland has been very responsive um, to the Italian varietals. There's a lot of Italian restaurants in Portland. Some of them are weirdly not into American Sangiovese, but the other ones are very supportive and good. Um, so that's been kind of my bread and butter is Portland market and selling mm -hmm. to restaurants and wine shops. So that hasn't been, I mean, sales is always tough. I don't want to say it's not an issue, but I haven't had too much blowback from it not being Pinot. I think people are actually ready for other varietals and see what else Oregon can do. Mm -hmm. um, there's, oh, uh, there's Syrah back here from the Rocks District out mm -hmm. in Milton Freewater, mm -hmm. which I think is like one of the most incredible terroirs in the, the whole state. And mm -hmm. so I'm very excited to bottle that here in the next couple weeks and release that. Um, so I, I don't think it's been too much of a challenge. I did get some blowback like trying to find distributors in other states when they're like, like Oregon San Giovese and they're like, good luck bud. <laughs> <laughs> and then when they tried it, like my Colorado distributors, it, He's awesome, but and I totally I understand when someone emails you is like, you want to pick up some Oregon Sangiovese? You're like, hey man, good luck, but I I don't know. And then I met him and I, he uh, tried it and he's like, okay, this is way better than I thought it was going to be. Um, and now we work together and we have a great working relationship and he's super excited about it. So it's a bit of a battle there, but it, I have to say that everything's happened with my little winery at like the exact pace that I can handle it, and so I. 
I really appreciate that. I'm not trying to go too fast here or anything. What would you say the the sort of what people think of like Hood River wine or, or Gorge wines? What do they, what do they think of? Uh, what is the reputation of, of the area? That's a good question. Um, I always have a different personal perspective than most, so I don't know if I'm the best to answer that. But I would say that it's mostly like the Mary Hills and um, kind of bigger wineries further out east, actually in the valley. Like, um, yeah, people don't. I would say that's the most general like perception of it, but people do know like the old school ones, like the Pines, which is an incredible vineyard, and the wines are fantastic. Um, so there's there's always like a perception of some of these older ones. It's more like I would say I don't mean this in a bad way, but most of their perception is coming out here, being in the gorge, and going to the winery and having a some of the wine there at the winery, but not really drinking it anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And so it's more of a touristy thing, you have the Fruit Loop. And so I think that is probably our, you know, one of our battles is mm -hmm. trying to get people to drink Gorge wine in other areas. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the rocks at Milton Freewater uh, as, a, as an uh, exciting terroir. Tell me, since we don't get out here terribly often, uh, we've been out in the rocks, but it's been a while. Tell me okay. a little bit about why the rocks is exciting to you and, and, and what's going on in there. Um, yeah, so there's a couple wineries out there. It's all, so it's a, a tiny little AVA that is an old riverbed. Um, and it's a little bit like Cote or for people that don't know that. It's, it's called the rocks because there's no topsoil. It's just these bluish brown softball sized rocks. And it literally just goes straight down for 80 feet. There's no hard pan. So these vines can just go and really pick up this kind of gravelly, it's, it's like in the best way possible, kind of like wet pavement or wet rocks um, nose. If you stick your nose into a glass of rocks raw and you've had it before, you know exactly what it is. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I mean by just unique, like distinctive terroir of mm -hmm. that place. And um, so it's, it's in the Walla Walla area, like the border of the rocks is probably, I don't know, it's less than a mile from the Washington border. There's Cayuse out there. There's uh, Beauty Wines or the Rocks Garden where I get this from. It's incredibly uh, well-farmed, well-managed um, vineyard that Beauty Wines gets their Syrah from. Mm -hmm. um, there's actually some Roussan co-fermented in some of these barrels. And uh, it's, it's just a cool place. It's kind of more like your Rhone varietals, and then there's some stone fruits planted out there too. And um, yeah, it's a tough place to farm just because you're farming on rocks. So mm -hmm. you get flat tires from the tractor all the time. You're messing up implements. You're it's just like twisting ankles walking around out there. It's it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> you're earning your grade. Yeah, you're earning it for sure. So as you were uh, developing your brand and starting to get started here, why, why did you settle on the name Buonanotte? Um, so Buonanotte means good night, and it's just like trying to, it's really hard to name things, <laughs> especially these days, everything's got a name. There's so many different wineries and so many different wines from all those wineries. And so just trying to find something that was related to what I'm trying to do, which is have a good night with food and wine. Mm -hmm and find something. So all these, the whole idea is having a kind of an Italian leaning 
winery in the gorge here. There's Syrah, there's Sauvignon Blanc, which aren't strictly Italian, but they are grown in Italy, mm -hmm. I promise. <laughs> um, and that's the best thing about having an Italian winery. There's like 10,000 varietals grown in Italy. You can kind of almost do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. um, so, Buona Notte was just something we kind of settled on. It made, it, when you like, when you, we said it, we were like, That's, that feels really good. And it really just came down to uh, having an incredible evening with good food, wine, family, friends. And so if you look at our labels, um, the positioning of the sun, it was originally moon, so sometimes I think it's a moon. Like for the vermouth, it's above the horizon where it's kind of like an aperitivo. When it's on the wine bottles, it's just setting kind of like evening time. And then we have a rosé where it's just in the middle of the sky for like day drinking. So um, it's just a fun, fun way to play around with uh, timing what you should be drinking when, which is one of my other passions. It's mm -hmm. like finding the right drink for the right um, occasion. Mm -hmm. So how would you describe your winemaking philosophy and, and sort of how it's uh, emerged over the years under the under the various mentors you've had. Um, God, all right. Uh, it, my winemaking philosophy is like rustic and gentle as possible. Um, kind of no formulas. You can have an idea of what you want to do, uh, but it's just like a loose thing that you need to be able to adjust per vintage and per day, and kind of like roll with the punches and just having faith in things tasting good eventually. <laughs> it's kind of like hold tight. Um, you can look around this facility. We're not the cleanest, most like precise winery in the world, but we try and like know what's going on in a very like almost artistic way. Mm -hmm. Just letting it, the grapes speak for themselves and adding some processes that can naturally get a desired effect, I would say. What's something about uh, being a winemaker that surprised you? What was something you weren't expecting to be part of the, the sort of winemaking realm? Um, that's a good question. I, I mean, I, I watched Maggie and Nate do it for so long that, and I'm still so new at it. Like, I still, people ask me what I do, and I, I still, like, it's hard to say, like, winemaker still. <laughs> You're like, I, I guess I'm a winemaker. <laughs> um, I mean, it's, it's, I guess I, it doesn't really surprise me, but it's really a large percentage being, like, a small business owner is, is, like, I knew that, but learning all that has been the fun, interesting part. Mm -hmm. And winemaking is still, the best part of the year, but you got to do the rest the rest of the year, and that's been a really fun adventure, I'd say. Um, so you're, you mentioned your father's your business partner. It's kind of a family endeavor. So tell me, tell me what it's like working with family. Um, it's the best. My dad, it's, he's just the sweetest, most patient, kind guy. That he's done this so many times with people. He just knows exactly like how it goes, how to coach me through it, and he's like. I don't care if you make mistakes, just don't make mistakes twice, which I definitely have, but um, it's, he's just very patient, kind, so excited about all the good things that happen and doesn't care about all the bad things that happen, which pretty much like the best partner you can have. He's on an 11th month trip traveling. He's in uh, Ireland. He just went to like the 
British Open golf tournament, so it's someone, I guess I authorize a lot of time off for him, so they can't really complain. <laughs> it's, um, what do you see? You mentioned, you mentioned uh, down the road uh, slow growth and a possible potential vineyard down the way. What else do you see as you look ahead for Bonanote? Um, yeah, I mean, the vineyard is kind of a, something I'm very excited about in the next two to three years, like I said. And this facility here, I mean, even though I share it with people, I, I really love the collaborative aspect of sharing it with these people. And like I was saying earlier to you off camera, is um, we're all at the same stage of starting our own brand, if you will. And so we're a great resource for each other. We help each other. We're like, we'll do, if someone's out of town and they get a tasting somewhere, I'll go do it for Jasper. Mm -hmm. Jasper will do it for me. He delivers wine for me when I'm out of town. So we really rely on each other to do things where going to start a wine club together as well. It's called the Columbia Club where some wine, some cider, some guest wines. We'll do really fun events out here. Um, so I actually, I hope I stay here for a few more years. Like I have no problem being here. Um, eventually, I guess I'd like to have my own spot, but I think a vineyard is kind of actually, I, at first I thought I would want my own winery before a vineyard, but now I think I want my own vineyard before I want my own winery. Mm -hmm. And then just to, like I was saying, grow at a pace that's comfortable. I don't want to make, I don't think I ever would want to be more than 3,000 cases. And that even sounds like a lot. Like I'd rather be around 2,000 or something. And just, I would say for me, the biggest stage is, I, I think I've done a pretty good job with the wine. It's, it's good, but you're your own worst critic at the same time. So I just want to be better at making the wines I'm making now um, and really learn how to work with every varietal that I'm working with. And, make the best wines I can every vintage. Like I'm very motivated for this vintage to do the little tweaks that need to be done on all these and try and get them to a next level. So you haven't been in the Oregon industry too long, but tell me, is there, have you, is there anything you've noticed that's changed in the Oregon wine industry since you've come into it? Is there a... Is there a I mean, the obvious massive growth of it all sure. and like how many new wineries there are. And you know, something I, I don't, venture into the Willamette all that often. I have a lot of friends that work down there and I still feel semi-connected, but there's so many things happening down there that I'm not aware of, so. But I, I hear that even with all the growth and all the big wineries and money that's coming in, they're still very collaborative. They still feel like they're doing it all together and there's no cattiness, which I actually do believe, but I'll, I'll tell you what I can speak on is the gorge here. And everyone here is so incredibly kind to each other because we really do feel like it's all for one and one for all. Um, just because we are the lesser known part of Oregon and we're tr really trying to do something special here and we have the terroir to do it. And I mean, there's the people here that really want to do that as well. So it's so fun to like have Nate still as a mentor. I can talk to Steven and Chris and Analemma for anything I know. I can even like, uh, Ryan at Idiot's Grace before I found this space. Like he didn't have space, but he's like, you need a place, like we'll, we'll make it work because I want you to make wine. Uh, and we all get together and have wine and food together on, you know, probably not as much as we should, but fairly regular basis. And so um, that's kind of like the best part about it. And then change in the gorge, it just seems like we are starting to get that national, here's, here's what I'd say is, the Willamette's growing at a really fast pace, but it's also like 
other Oregon wines seem to be doing really well. If you've got like the Applegate Valley, everything down south, and then us are starting to make a name for ourselves in the gorge as well. And that comes through like the collaboration of not just us being tight knit, but tight knit with other people across the whole state and really trying to make this uh, a state that can even compete with California or anything for quality and diversity. So what do you see as you look ahead for Oregon wine, say 10 years in, into the future? What do you, what do you see happening uh, here specifically on, in the gorge and then in kind of Oregon in general? Um, so I feel very unqualified to talk about that completely, <laughs> but from my perspective, I would say that it's only, it's just gonna get, I think the winemaking is just gonna go through the roof. I think there's so many people making wine now that, and it's just like the competition is gonna breed excellence, if mm -hmm. you will. Like you're gonna have to be making delicious wine to sell wine in the future. So I hope that I can keep up and I hope that that's 100% true because I think better wine is better than more wine. So it'd be really fun to see what happens. And I just think there's like the resources and that can make that happen. What advice would you have for someone who wanted to enter the Oregon wine industry today? Um, find your own path, find what speaks to you, and then go for that. Uh, I think that like, it's pretty tough to try and be a Willamette Valley Pinot Noir producer these days, but if that's really what you want to do, just do it really, really well, and you'll be okay. Um, but there's so many other avenues to kind of go down that are slightly different and can be a little more fun even because you get to play with different varietals in different areas and make it more interesting. Yeah. So any questions? So the questions that I have for you today, uh, is there anything I should have asked that I didn't? Anything we should have covered that we didn't cover? Last thoughtful words here. Um, I just get so into like just <laughs> rambling. I don't even remember. I think that's pretty good though. He's talked about, I think you guys are pretty pro. You've done this before. So. <laughs> well, thank you guys. Yeah. Well, awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time here today and for your answers. So we really yeah. appreciate this and uh, we'll go ahead and let you off with that. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.